Our text this morning is Romans chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. And as we customarily do, let's read into this for context and then ask the Lord's blessing. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin." For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, For you are not under law, but under grace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, again, as we come before you this morning, we recognize that this is holy ground. Um, Lord, this is your word. And no one has any ability to understand your word apart from the work of your Holy Spirit illuminating our hearts and our minds. Father, give us grace, great grace, and understanding in your word and change us forevermore to be like your Son. May we trust you more this day and this week than we have in the prior weeks. Thank you for the work that you have promised to do, are doing, and will bring to fruition in each one of us, your sons and daughters by grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as you know, we uh, find ourselves in Romans chapter 6 again this morning, and we have been working through a section in which Paul is describing the doctrine of our union with Christ as the chief rebuttal and response to the antinomian, the one who would ask this question, shall we continue in sin? Um, Shall we give ourselves to sin continually that grace may abound? And Paul's answer, as you heard, is a resounding no. And the reason he gives is this truth. We've died to sin. We've died. Actually, it's impossible for a true child of God to continue in sin as the habitual pattern of his or her life if, in fact, you have been joined to Christ. If you've been baptized into Christ which means immersed into him completely, forever and finally immersed into him by the work of the Holy Spirit of God, 
who has planted us together with Christ, who has grafted us together with Christ. These are all pictures that help us to understand the unification of the work of God that he has done in bringing us into fellowship with himself. How? By faith in his dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in what he has done on the cross of Calvary to pay for our sins. That simple act of trusting him, looking to him in faith, is what we have learned to be justification by faith, that we have been made right with God, and as a result, we have the purse of blessings open to us. Every blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we are pausing in chapter 6 really to address uh, this question of lawlessness. Does it have any place since grace is abounding? And of course the answer is no, we have died. Now, this morning, we're going to be looking, as I said, at verses 10 through 12 primarily. And I'd like to just give you as an outline three words to help us uh, direct us as we traverse our way through the Word of God. These three words are know, K-N-O-W, like knowledge, to reckon, and to do. Pretty simple. Know, reckon, and do. So here's the first, no, and it starts really um, in verse 3, do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Verse 9, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And look what he says now in verse 10. Verse 10 is clearly a continuation of verse 9. He starts with four. There's our connecting word. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. This is under the heading of knowing. We know that Christ has been raised from the dead. He will never die again. And, be, and because of that, death does not have dominion over him. And here's the explanation. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. Now, what does this mean to be that he died to sin? We heard of ourselves in verse 2 that it was we who died to sin. Here, Paul is saying Christ has died to sin. Well, this is also translated, died unto sin, or died for sin, or you could say died in relation to sin. And I want to give you an example, just if you would look over at Romans chapter 8, that I think explains this concept pretty well of what it means that Jesus died to sin. In Romans 8, verse 3, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. God sent his son on account of sin, or another way of translating that is for sin, for the purpose of dealing with sin. And why? Why did he send his son to deal with sin when he had no sin of his own? Well, because no son of Adam was ever able to keep the law perfectly as God's law, his righteousness, requires. No son of Adam ever since Adam has been able to keep the law. The, the law is weak through the flesh. The law is good. It's just. It's holy. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is in sinful man. 
in our flesh, we are not able to keep the requirements of the law. We have what he calls flesh. Flesh in Scripture is often used to describe our mortal bodies. It is that which is given to corruption, that which has been corrupted by sin. And so because of this, the law is not able to produce life or righteousness for anyone in Adam. No one. The law was weak through the flesh. If there had been a law which could have given life, Galatians 3 says, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But because no man was able to keep God's righteous standard of perfection, he sent his only son. And you'll note that it says he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He was not a sinner himself. He was not born sinful like all of us in Adam. He was born sinless, conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost. So he was only in the likeness of a, of a person, of a sinner, though he was not a sinner. He took on a human body. He appeared as a, a slave. And he, Scripture tells us, was tempted in all points like we are yet without sin in order that he might represent us, in order that he might satisfy what God has required all along, perfect, perfect, um, uh, perfect obedience to the law of God. And so Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of, for the purpose of dealing with sin, and we're told he condemned sin in the flesh. This is an amazing statement, brothers and sisters. You see, we were condemned by the one sin of Adam we learned in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. We were condemned to die because of Adam's one sin. But this text tells us that Christ, by meeting a sin head on himself, by subjecting himself willingly to die in our place, to take the penalty for our sin upon himself, and to let sin, so to speak, exhaust itself upon him, he has condemned sin in the flesh. It has no claim on him anymore. The penalty for our sin has been removed in him. He condemns sin in the flesh. He has reversed the curse and pronounced a sentence of judgment against sin itself. And because he has satisfied divine justice, removing the penalty of sin against us forever, forever, Paul can say in Romans 8, 1, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. There is no condemnation now and there never will be any more because Christ has died to sin once for all. In other words, this is so comforting. When we sin now as children of God, we do not risk losing our salvation. We don't risk losing our salvation. We are fully accepted by God in Christ. His wrath has been turned away, and we now have a new relationship with him, that of a father to a son. And that father will spank and correct those sons that are walking disorderly. But he does so to correct us and to cause us to repent and turn to him. So there is our comfort. There is no sin that he has not paid for in our past, today, and in the future that we have yet to commit and that he knows about. All of those have been paid in full in Christ. Rejoice, brother and sister, when you sin, you've not fallen out of grace. You've not lost your salvation.
And not only was sin's penalty removed from us because of Christ and his um, condemnation of sin itself, but the power of sin over us has been removed forever. That's what we've been looking at here in Romans chapter 6. We are now free from the tyranny and reign of sin in our lives. Romans chapter 6 verse 7 says, For he who has died with Christ, is the assumption, has been freed from sin. Freed from the power of sin. No longer does it rule and reign in our hearts as it once did. And because of this, the writer to the Hebrews can say in Hebrews chapter 9 that Christ appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Put it away. In other words, to um, cancel its power. Like a law. He's canceled it as having power over us forever. This is all what is to be understood and comprehended by this idea that Christ died to sin. He died to sin in its penalty He died to sin in its power over us. And Paul says this, that he did this once. My translation says, once for all. Um, He does not mean once for all people. He means once for all time. A one-time event that was satisfactory and never needs to be repeated. The body and blood of Christ, in other words, can never be offered again. That is why it is such an abomination to consider what the Catholic Church does in their weekly Mass. They are effectively calling Christ down from his glory to re-crucify him again and again and again. When Scripture is clear, this is a work that he has done once for all time. It does not need to be repeated. And you can see how assurance of salvation is completely bound up in this bad theology, or lack of assurance of of salvation is bound up in bad theology. If Christ needs to die repeatedly, if one death was not satisfactory for all time for all of his people, what assurance could any of us possibly have that we um, can go to heaven, that our sins have in fact been dealt with? The question would remain, have my sins truly been covered and expunged? Or not. Scripture is clear. Christ died once for sin. That is the basis and confidence that we have in our salvation in Christ. We do not need to pay for our sins. He has paid for our sins in full. So you could say that Christ died to sin in relation to sin. He he has died to the whole realm of sin and death, I believe is what Paul is at pains to say here. He's finished with it forever. And he goes on to say in verse 10, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. He lives. He uses the present active form of lives. In other words, he lives perpetually without end. He always lives to God. He always has lived to God. What does it mean that that Christ lives to God? Well, it means this, first of all, that he lives face to face with God, in the presence of God, always oriented toward God. In a constant relationship with him. And this, is it not how we are introduced to Christ, the eternal word of God, at the beginning of John's gospel? This is exactly how he's introduced to us. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Pros is the Greek word. Face to face with God. That's how he always has been living to God, in relationship with God. And he was face to face with God in all things. 
even in the creation of the world. We saw that this morning, or heard that this morning, I hope, as Proverbs 8 was being read, and how the Scripture personifies the wisdom of God. It's very interesting. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.24 describes Jesus Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. And so when Proverbs 8 personifies wisdom, I believe it does so looking forward to Christ or looking to Christ in this way. Listen to Proverbs 8, 27 to 30. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him as a master craftsman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. That is a picture of Christ. He is always living face to face with God, with God, and um, very much a part of everything that God has done. All things were made through him. That's a reference to Christ. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So first of all, he lives face to face with God. Second of all, it means that we, that he always does the will of God. Christ always does the will of God. This is what it means to live to God. See, when he took on flesh in his incarnation, he didn't stop living to God. He continued living to God on the earth in this sense by always doing the will of the Father. And you remember those passages. He said in John 6.38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He never turned away from the face of the Father. We know that the Father turned his face away from the Son for a time at Calvary. But the Son never turned his face away from the Father. He always sought to do the will of God. And at the end of Jesus' ministry in the Upper Room Discourse in John 17, the night before he went to the cross. He said this in verses 4 and 5, speaking to the Father, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. That's remarkable considering that he hadn't gone to the cross yet. But salvation for God is an accomplished fact. It was planned in eternity past. It was certain to be accomplished in the Son and it is certain to be applied by the Spirit of God. It is all of God. It is guaranteed. So Christ speaks with confidence, the work that you have given me, I have finished. I have finished it. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. See, Christ lived perfectly face to face with God on the earth and even though he had humbled himself greatly by taking on flesh, by pouring his glory into an earthly body where his glory was veiled, it was veiled. He had to reveal his glory to his disciples. He set aside that fullness of heavenly glory where he was praised and worshipped and adored by countless angels. He, in fact, encumbered himself with our very sins. And in that state, he always lived to God in perfect relationship to him. Even in his death on the cross, you could say that that was part of his living to God. Why? Because he yielded himself to the, to the will of God to obey perfectly. Even in his dying, he was living to God. 
And because he obeyed perfectly, the Father being satisfied with his blessed Son in whom he loves, with whom he's well pleased, he raised the Son from the dead to live forevermore to God. The difference now being unencumbered by our sin. Unencumbered by our sin. He returns to heaven bearing the scars of his accomplished redemption for us, which will remain in eternity as a badge of honor, so to speak, of the glory of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And he now is, and his gospel is, the subject of angelic inquiry, Peter tells us. They desire to look into these things. So Christ died to sin one time for all. He condemned sin in the flesh, removed its penalty, removed its power over us. And he is perpetually living to God, oriented to God, face to face with God, doing the will of God. Brothers and sisters, question. Why do you suppose that Paul wants us to understand that truth in verse 10? Look at verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our first point in our outline was know, know this truth about Christ. He died to sin once, but he lives to God forever. Now, point two is reckon. Reckon this to be true. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says, likewise you also. That means in the same manner. In the same manner as is true of Jesus, of what we learned in verse 10. I want you to reckon yourselves. Now, this is not an unfamiliar word to us. This is a word that Paul used extensively in Romans 3, but particularly in 4. In chapter 4, he used this word 11 times. It's the Greek word loizome, and it refers to imputation. When we learned all about how we are declared righteous, by God in our justification, it's through what he calls imputation, accrediting, an accounting of the righteousness of Christ to us simply by faith. Just like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him, it was imputed to him, what was? The righteousness of God in Christ. So we know this term, and here in chapter 6, he uses it again, Um, It is sometimes translated consider, consider yourselves, but not in the sense of think about as a possibility, like consider this as a possibility. No, no, consider this fact is the way he's using this. Count on this, or maybe even better yet, come to a settled conviction about this. Affirm this to be true. Conclude this to be true. That's the idea. And what is it that Paul wants us to affirm conclusively? Verse 10. That since Christ died once to sin and lives perpetually to God, so you also need to reckon, consider, conclude, affirm that this is true about you too, that you also died once to sin and live perpetually to God. You see? You say, when did we die to sin? Well, we talked about this a little bit previously, but just as a refresher, in point of fact, this happened at the cross. At the cross. When Christ died, we were crucified with him, Paul says in Romans 6. In our experience, that comes to us when we come to faith in Christ. 
when we believe the message, when we see him as our Lord and Savior, that's when we die to sin in our experience. And so we're taught that when Christ was raised to walk in newness of life, we were raised to walk in newness of life. And now we live as Christ lives face to face with God. And how do we look at the face of God? Is it not in the face of Jesus Christ? We gaze at him as in a mirror, intently. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians 3. Intently looking at his glory, the glory of God, as a man looks at himself in a mirror. Spend time gazing intently. And he will, as we do this, change us from one degree of glory to another, even as by the Spirit of our God. So Paul is saying here, I want you to affirm this to be the conviction of your heart, brother brother and sister in Christ, with no doubting. Here's what I want you to affirm. This truth of what is true of Christ is also true of you. Now, the Reformers had... um, a way of explaining genuine faith as they thought about assurance of salvation. And they synthesized what true faith looks like into three words. Those words were noticia, essentia, and fiducia. They're Latin words. And they kind of sound like what they are. Noticia means to take notice of the facts, to observe, to see something, to observe uh, uh, or perceive that something is true. That's the first step in genuine faith. We must notice, take notice of what the truth is. And the second is essentia, A-S-S-E-N-T-I-A, like to assent to the truth. When we are assenting to the truth, we are believing. So we've seen the fact, we're now saying, I believe it in my mind. I'm assenting to it. But then true faith does not stop there. The third step is fiducia. Fiducia means to trust. It means to come to a settled conviction about something, not just in my mind, but in my heart. That's what Paul is getting at here, because as we've seen in the progression, Paul already called us to know the truth of our union with Christ from verses 3 to 9. In verse 8, he calls us to believe it. And then in verse 11 here, he says, reckon, conclude that these things are true. May they be a conviction for you and me in our hearts. So knowledge leads to belief and leads to conviction of heart. And Paul even stresses this idea of reckoning in this way. He says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Dead indeed to sin. In other words, verily, truly, not just, we're not talking about theory here. Like this sounds really great on the page. No, This is not theory. I want you to reckon this as true for yourself, as an actual point in fact in your life that you are convinced of and that you are going to live in the light of. That's what he's getting at. He's calling for faith. This is the Christian life, brothers and sisters. All of it requires faith, ongoing faith. Um, The commentator William Hendrickson, I thought, put this really well when he said this, quote, what has been established, namely, that believers are in principle dead to sin and alive to Christ, in principle, must become the abiding conviction of their hearts and minds, the takeoff point for all their, now get this, thinking, planning, rejoicing, speaking, doing. They must constantly bear in mind that they are no longer what they used to be. 
their lives from day to day must show that they have not forgotten this. They are in Christ, chosen in Him, redeemed in Him, living in Him. End quote. You see, Hendrickson is, I think, summarizing really well what we're saying here and what the Apostle Paul is saying, that these truths must become etched in our hearts as a conviction, that we believe and that we live based on, that all of our thinking, our planning, our doing is done in the light of this truth. This, in other words, is a framework. This is our framework for living the Christian life. It is to understand what the truth is, to believe the truth, and then to reckon it to be true for yourself in a trusting way, to move forward in faith on these principles. You see, we get into trouble when we try to reverse that order, right? And this is what the false religions of the world do. They all focus on our works, the things that we do. The things that we do are absolutely meaningless, powerless, and actually rubbish if we're doing them in our own strength. But when we do them in faith, when faith is the foundation first, now we're doing the work of God because faith itself is a gift of God. So here's the principle. What happened to Christ happened to us because we are united to him. And, you know, it's remarkable. Even this idea of reckoning itself that Paul is talking about in verse 11, it follows the same pattern of this. What the Lord did first, you do next. In other words, just as the Lord reckoned you righteous by faith in Christ, Romans 3 and 4, that's your justification, just as he reckoned you, you reckon yourselves now free from the power of sin. That's your sanctification. What the Lord does, reckoning you, he has now given you authority to do regarding yourselves and your sanctification. You say, wow, how does he do that? Because salvation is a cohesive whole, links in one chain. Again, whoever is justified will also be sanctified. Whoever is sanctified will also be glorified. There's no difference in the mind of God. It's his plan. It's his power that does all of this. So he's saying, look, if I've in fact justified you, reckoned you righteous because you've trusted in my son, I want you to think of yourself this way. Come to a settled conviction that what happened with Christ also happened to you. He has died to sin once for all. You have died to sin once for all, and now you live to him perpetually. May that be the framework of your life. May you think on that and meditate on that daily throughout the day because that is going to be the source of your power for the Christian life. You know, there is a section in um, Malachi, we were talking about this at Men's Study a couple of weeks ago, in chapter 3, when the Lord, in the context of robbing God, he's, he's, making, he's br- making a case against Israel, and he's saying, you have robbed God. And they say, how have we robbed you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. Bring your tithes and offerings into the storehouse and test me, try me in this. See if I don't open the windows of heaven and pour out such a blessing on you that you will not be able to contain it. It's not perfect, but that's the idea. What's the idea? Test me. Try me in this. Now, should we test God? I would say on the one hand, no. I mean, if it's a matter like Romans chapter 6, verse 1, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, that's bad testing of God. 
But is there a right testing, a good testing of God? Yeah. Reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin. Why? Because God told you that you are. Try me in this and see if I won't pour out a blessing on you, brother and sister. What's the blessing? Power over sin in your life today. Moment by moment, as you are facing temptation, reckon yourself as God reckons you and see that God has blessed you and will bless you by giving you victory over that sin, one at a time. You see? Test him in that. Test him in faith, in what he has already said is true of you. Some of you now may be saying, well, okay, I understand the concept. I died to sin. I lived to, to God. I, I get that mentally, but what does this mean like practically? How do I do this on a daily basis? Well, that's where verse 12 comes in. So Paul's got our minds engaged now, right? He says, here are the things you need to know. Here's what you need to believe. Our hearts are engaged because we are reckoning this to be true. It's a settled conviction for us. Now it's time for the will to be engaged. And here is step three in the outline. Do. We know, we reckon, now it's time to do. And in fact, it's a do not. It's put in the negative. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lust. Now, um, this was pointed out to me, I think by Lloyd-Jones. I don't take credit for it, but it's true and I have to share it with you. Do you realize that verse 12 of chapter 6 is the first time that Paul is exhorting his readers to do anything. It's the first exhortation in the entire letter to Romans to date. All of this has been doctrinal truth to this point. Let that kind of sink for just a moment. I mean, how much focus does the Lord put on truth before doing? This exhortation is not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's actually a command. He says, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. This is a command for every Christian. In fact, this is serious business because this is a way that we evidence that we are, in fact, true Christians, that we belong to him, that we're in Christ, that we've been baptized into him because we do this or we don't do this. We don't let sin reign. Now, he starts by saying, therefore, so in the light of the first 11 verses, what we've learned so far, and particularly in verse 10, this idea of reckoning yourselves as Christ is, so we are, this is a picture of what it means to walk in newness of life. This is an amplification of verse 4. This is what it means to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Or this is evidence of one who is dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Now, notice, first of all, he does not say, don't let sin reign in you. It's a subtle distinction, but it's important. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. What's that? Well, mortal means liable to death, subject to death, subject to corruption and decay. That's why we have a mortal body. It's a body that's dying Body is the word soma. It's the word for physical body or an organism of which there are many parts. There's hands, there's feet, there's ears, eyes, nose, brain. All of that is the physical body. He says, 
Don't let sin reign in your mortal body, the the part of you that is corrupted by sin, which tends towards sin and death. There's other terms that he is going to use in this section of Scripture that you should be aware of that are all synonymous. When he said body of sin in verse 6, it's the same idea, mortal body. He says body of death in chapter 7, verse 24, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. He uses the word flesh, as we saw in chapter 8, verses 1 and 3, flesh and sinful flesh. It's all the same. This is the mortal body. This is the physical sphere where sin used to reign in you. No longer does. Used to reign there. That's where sin as the old nature, that tyrant, was sitting on the throne reigning in your mortal body. It's kind of like this. Previously, you in your old soul, your old spirit, had this tyrant who was reigning there. He's called the old man. And he would use your mortal body as the vehicle to express all of his sinful desires through you. It's kind of like uh, your body was a vehicle that was hijacked to do the will and the bidding of the old tyrant. Whatever he wanted, you were given over to. And now, by grace, that we are born again, we are a new creation in Christ, what's happened is you've been given a new spirit, lowercase s, new spirit, new heart has been put in you. This is Ezekiel 36, the new covenant, right? So there's a new spiritual you that is the true you. That's why Paul doesn't say, don't let sin reign in you. That part has been cleansed, is sanctified, is new. But you're still incarcerated in unredeemed humanity, in a mortal body, where sin still is present and tends toward corruption. It doesn't rain anymore, but it's still there. And it needs to be dealt with. That's why he's bringing this up. You see, this mortal body is going to be with us in this life to the end. The sin has not been eradicated yet because we have this mortal body. There is a day coming, however, when this body is going to be changed. And that's the glorious news of the gospel in our glorification. What is yet to come? That at the last trumpet in a moment, the Lord is going to raise your body from the dead. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, that which is corruptible is going to put on incorruption. That which is mortal is going to put on immortality. You're going to be given the final portion of the promised inheritance, which is the salvation of your body. And then you will be completely saved. But for now, we have to deal with sin still in the body. Okay, so the instruction is this. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. What does that mean? The word he uses for obey is important. It's the Greek word that means to listen under. Under, like prepositionally under. And the idea is to listen under authority. It it was used of a porter in a house whose job it was to answer the door whenever it knocked. He was always listening to obey the call at the door. That's what the word means. And so Paul is saying this, 
don't be like the porter who answers the door when sin comes knocking because it's going to knock. It's going to knock a lot. And it comes knocking with what he calls lusts, epithemius in Greek. It just means strong desires, but particularly it's strong desires for the forbidden. Sin is going to come knocking at the door with strong desires. And let me just relate a couple things here that hopefully are relatable. Sometimes the knocks are soft, right? Sometimes it goes something like this. Go ahead. You can do that. It's relatively small. It's harmless. Nobody's going to get hurt by doing that. Just go ahead. Soft. It's a whisper. It's a soft knock. Other times, it might be a loud knock. It might be, hey, did you hear the way that she just talked to you? That was disrespecting you. You don't deserve that. Put her in her place now. That's a loud knock. Do not answer the door when the door knocks like that. And here's the wonderful news, brother and sister. You don't have to knock at the, or you don't have to answer this door. You don't have to. Sin is a dethroned tyrant, but he still talks. He still clamors. He still shouts at you and says, you got to do this. Answer. But you don't. You don't. And what help do we have? This knowledge right here. This word that says, reckon that this is true of you. You're done with sin. The power of sin is gone in your life. The power, the absolute power, it's been done away with. Reckon it to be true of you so that when you're in that situation and you're feeling that pressure, you go to the Lord and say, Lord, help me. I don't want to answer the door right now. Um, There's several things that are implied and I think to be understood by this admonition of not letting sin reign, and I just want to give them to you. There's three things. First is this. The fact that Paul says, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies, certainly implies that our mortal bodies are going to war against us, right? That they are going to seek dominion again, even though they don't have it. Paul said in Galatians 5, 16 and 17, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. There is a war that is always going on. We need to expect battle daily, in other words. Don't be ignorant. Don't be foolish and think that there's been a truce and we're just going to sit down and relax and enjoy the day. There's a battle that is raging, and if you're not prepared, you're going to be destroyed So what's the practical remedy? Well, it's walk in the Spirit. Simple. Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You know what the remedy, the antidote is to answering the door when it says, do this thing that you know your flesh really wants to do. Walk in the Spirit. Well, what does that mean? Well, when we talked about walking in newness of life, walking is always a way of describing a pattern, a a, a way of living, a habit. So make this your habit. Walk in the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, Romans 8, 5. Paul says this, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. 
but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. So to walk habitually in the Spirit is to set our minds regularly on the things of the Spirit. What are those things? Colossians 3, 1 and 2. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. The fleshly person sets his mind on the things of the earth. That's his realm. That's where he lives. That's what he loves. Spiritually minded people set their minds on things above, where Christ is, which is what? His word, which is him. And then I find this most interesting in Romans 8, verse 13. Look, look at this. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So when we think about walking in the Spirit, we need to stop thinking about that if we do as taking a stroll in the park. I'm just going to take a walk in the Spirit today. No. Walking in the Spirit is actually how we engage in spiritual warfare. What is it that we take up in our hands when we take up the Word of God? Is it not the sword of the Spirit? We are arming ourselves as we are setting our minds here. We're arming ourselves with a sword and we're learning how to use it to kill our own sinful desires in our flesh. Not a walk in the park. This is battle, loved ones. So that's the, the first thing in terms of implication is there's a, a war that is going on constantly. We need to be prepared for it and we need to walk in the Spirit, take up the sword of the Word of God, and He will give us the strength in those moments to not answer the door. In fact, maybe open the door and hack. Not going to do that. Secondly, we can still let sin reign in our mortal bodies. That's another implication, right? If He says, don't let sin reign, we can let sin reign. That's why He tells us not to. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 33, please. I just want to give you an illustration of this that I thought was helpful as I was studying this week. <clears throat> Numbers chapter 33. Um, let's look at verse 50. Okay, 50 to 56 is going to, just, is going to be the text here. So, Numbers 33, 50. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan, across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. And you shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give a smaller inheritance. There everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. Now look at verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, in other words, you let them remain. Then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes 
and thorns in your sides. Actually, the word in the Hebrew they use for irritants is thorn, thistle, something sharp in the eye, and something sharp in your sides. And they, these inhabitants, these enemies in the land, shall harass you in the land where you dwell. So what happens if we don't follow this instruction that Paul gives in Romans 6, verse 12? To not let sin reign in your mortal bodies to fulfill the lust uh, thereof. What happens? Well, this is the same idea that Israel experienced with their physical enemies in the land. This is spiritually applied to us today as well as we deal with our spiritual enemies, as we deal with the lust of our flesh. It will vex us, is the idea. It will be like thorns and thistles in our eyes and in our sides. Pricks. It's going to harass you and be a snare to your soul. Why does the Lord do that? You know, in Judges chapter 2, he talks about, um, in a parallel way, he says, if Israel lets these enemies remain in the land, I will not drive them out. I'm going to leave them there too in order that they may be tested, the people, Israel, to test them to see whether they will walk in my ways as their fathers did and live or not. God is going to test us if we leave the enemies in the land. If we're not ruthless in hacking and dealing with those enemies, God is going to test us in this way. And brother and sister, this is a stern warning. Look at verse 56. Numbers thirty-three fifty-six. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. That's the Lord speaking. The Lord saying, I will do to you. What's that? I'm going to destroy you just as I thought to do to your enemies. That's a stern warning. If you will not deal with sin in your life according to this admonition that we have in Romans 6, 12, then God is going to destroy you ultimately. And the reason is that you're showing that you were never in Christ to begin with. You see? And that puts you in danger of hellfire forever. But for the Christian, for the one who is in Christ, we hear a stern admonition, a warning like this, and what do we do when we have been accommodating sin in our lives as we should not? We repent. We turn away from that godlessness and we say, Lord, be merciful to me. I was wrong. Help me. And what happens? We find the joy, the forgiveness of the Lord as the true child has when he comes to his father and he says, Daddy, I've done wrong. Forgive me. So, yes, we can still let sin reign in our mortal bodies, but we must not. We must not as a pattern of our lives. We will fall into sin. We will lose the battle in any given moment. Not saying we're never going to lose the battle. We will at times. But our response is what matters. We don't persist in our sin because we love it like the world does. We turn from that because we love Christ. So, yes, the second point is we can still let sin reign in our mortal bodies. The third is this. This is the last. For true believers, the reality is sin no longer reigns in your mortal body. That's the truth. It no longer dominates, and you do have the ability now to say no and not answer the door. And I think that there are, there are Christians who, unfortunately, just lack knowledge in this area. Um, there are Christians who, 
as John Owen, the, the great Puritan writer, used to say, he, has, he, said, he said this, a pastor has only two problems. One is persuading unbelievers that they are under the dominion of sin. And second is persuading believers that they are not under the dominion of sin. Here it is. The Scripture says you're not under the dominion of sin. Reckon it to be so. And for people who just haven't been taught that way, you know, they, they think about salvation in, in terms of justification only. And then they end up dealing with, battling the sin in their lives, and they don't have the tools to deal with it, and it drives them to a, a sense of despair. Spiritual depression will result if you don't know the truth that you've been set free in Christ, and you can fight this battle by walking in the Spirit daily. I think, secondly, that there are, or as a subcategory here, for those Christians who lack knowledge, when we lack knowledge, this essential gospel knowledge, we are totally prey to the devil and his attacks. The devil is crafty. He is a deceiver, and he's also an accuser, right? So he can come to us, and he'll, he'll lie. He'll deceive us, and he'll say, that sin is small. It's inconsequential. It doesn't really matter. No one's going to get hurt. Get on with it. It'll feel good, whatever it is. Or he will accuse us, and he'll say, you call yourself a Christian and you sin like that? You shouldn't even try anymore. Just give up. You are still bound. You see, in both ways, sweet talking or accusing. He's a liar and he's an accuser. Don't listen to his voice. Listen to the voice of truth. And then there are some Christians who I think have been taught this truth, but I think they just don't believe it. They've not reckoned it to be so as a settled conviction in their hearts. And so they struggle too. They, they say, I just can't get there. I'm just going to struggle perpetually and I, I don't see any victory. That's another ditch that leads to spiritual depression. So what am I saying? I'm saying trusting Christ is foundational in our salvation. All of it. It's foundational in our justification. It's foundational now in our sanctification. In reckoning these truths to be true of us. You know, there are many things in the Christian life that um, are kind of counterintuitive to the natural human sense, right? When we talk about what makes sense, quote-unquote, makes sense to the human sensibilities, there are many things that don't make sense, but they're things of faith, right? I mean, just a, a couple quick examples. Did, did it make any sense when Israel was told, look at a bronze serpent on a pole that's lifted up by Moses in the wilderness when you're bitten by a poisonous snake? And if you do that, you'll live, what sense does that make to the human sensibility? Or, Abraham, you're going to have a son through Sarah when she's well past childbearing bearing years, 90 years old. Does that make any sense? Or Lazarus, he's been dead for four days and yet he will rise again. Or, all our trust and confidence is in a Jewish carpenter who died on a cross 2,000 years ago for us. You see the point? These are issues of faith. These are issues of faith, and the Lord says it. He wants us to believe it. So, know, reckon, and do. That's the order. We've got to know the truth, believe the truth, reckon ourselves dead to sin but alive to God, and that must be our growing conviction. Brother and sister, let me encourage you. The next time you are in battle, you're facing sin, temptation, the Scripture says, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. 
1 Corinthians 10.13. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. What's the way of escape? Remember this truth. Just as Christ died once to sin for all and lives to God perpetually, so it is of you. Lord, help us to reckon that this week as we face our trials and temptations. Brothers and sisters, may you walk in victory this week and in the joy of the Lord, knowing that the battle is won. Let's go to his word and walk in him every day. Every day. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word is alive. It's powerful. It is changing our hearts and transforming us. Lord, as we hear your word, as we come to a a settled conviction that these things are true and that we can bank our lives on them. Lord, your word is our resource, our infinite resource, our help in time of need. May we come to you and not incline toward ourselves, our own understanding, but may we acknowledge you in all our ways. Father, thank you that you have given us victory in your Son. Thank you, Lord, that though we sin, we don't utterly fall away because it is you who hold us by the hand. Father, you are so good and kind to us in opening up these truths that we might have confidence and assurance that we are yours, we are forever saved, and Lord, we are now enabled to do what is otherwise impossible in the flesh, to walk in newness of life. May it be so for each one here, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.